Hello again. Welcome back to the Everyday Anarchism series on Kim Stanley Robinson's Three Californias Triptych. This is our final episode of this little series. We are talking about Pacific Edge, the hopeful democratic socialist version of California in this trilogy. The conversation, which you'll hear after the music, picks up with a little bit of talk about how jobs and the middle class life have been destroyed in the past 40 years and how Kim Stanley Robinson predicted that in the middle book of the triptych, The Gold Coast, and then how Pacific Edge was an attempt to make something right, a good world out of the mess that we were seeing in the 80s, a future that at times, even during writing the book, Stan says he felt like was impossible. I am so glad he wrote the book. This is my favorite of these three novels. I think this conversation about a world in which we have gotten things right, not perfect, but better, is so important. Here it is. Going back to... um, the the gold coast the idea that in the 2020s there would be you know boomer generation people with jobs and their children who have been raised middle class or upper middle class but don't have jobs because neoliberal capitalism has destroyed those jobs and that comes out so clearly in in the gold coast i i would not have have seen that coming. Um, yeah, it I'm was bouncing us around. Well, no, it was a felt the the logic of late capitalism, the the um, the strangulation of the middle class be, to reduce labor costs and increase profits. That was clear as a bell through the eighties. It hadn't yet um, completely strangled the the hopes of young people and. So as a baby boomer, I have to sometimes defend myself from very intense uh, millennial friends <laughs> who are, you know, you stole our, our but I'm, I always say to them, you know, it wasn't us. It's capital. It's the logic yeah. of capitalism itself. And when you get old, you will, the capital will have accrued to some of you, but fewer every generation yeah. because of accumulation of capital. That's the game. And, the, and so everybody's in the precariat. And and very few baby boomers actually scored. The rest of them are just poor old people. So it's a it's a, the generational thing is just the strangulation effect of the ordinary workings of capitalism in action. And I and it was easy to see that happening even in the eighties. Just that my parents coming from the New Deal, World War II, and then the fifties, the the Trump glorious, the 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 New Deal paying off with the GI Bill and a growth of a giant middle class where everybody felt like they were going to be middle class and every kid was going to do better. Well, that did work for the baby boomers, but then the strangulation began to catch us all. So yes, that's all in there. But um, well, we can, in terms of Pacific Edge, the, the, to try to make something right out of it, that began to be really problematic. Okay, I had already called out for myself. I'm going to do Utopia. It has to match Gold Coast and Wild Shore. 
the constraints were severe. Like what was going to happen that in the same time period, things were going to get better. And I early on decided they couldn't become entirely better. It had to be a work in, pro in process and contested. So some things were better. And I have to admit that Pacific Edge bugs me still in that it doesn't have a great historical explanation for how things got better. I had to have the tip, the classic utopian <laughs> gap. So utopia is there, but it's not connected historically to what came before. And there's not a good explanation in Pacific Edge for the good things that happened. I think Cory Doctorow is working on this right now in his new novel, The Lost Cause. Let's provide the history. And I myself had to go forward from Pacific Edge and write the Mars trilogy to try to provide the history in a different way of how do we get to the good society or a better political economy. In Pacific Edge, it's a little bit, you know, Athena out of the forehead of horrible old Zeus. It's it's there. It's poorly explained. I, I did some hand-waving. I had some chapters where there were five different ways in which the world became better, but it was so obviously um, artificial that I tossed those chapters. So I was stuck with what I had there. Um, I was constrained to keep it in Orange County, to make it a good society, and to make Tom Barnard still alive. And so I had to do all those things. And so it, of all of those, the California three, I think Pacific Edge is the most hopeful, maybe the most important, but also for me personally, the most frustrating and unsatisfactory. Hmm. And I like Kevin, and Kevin is a version of myself. I like to do things with my hands. I'm not particularly quick-witted. I don't. Um, I I went through Kevin's love story. That's the little autobiographical element, and that was intense enough to be worth telling as a story. Um, so I'm glad. I I like the small story inside the Pacific Edge. Ah. Those four characters. The larger political economy story, the big historical story, I'm not so happy with. So i i want to get I want to get to the big historical story at first, but first I want to get to not not the the ultra small scale story of the characters, which I think is beautiful, and of these three novels. So I've read a, a few blog. I mean, I try not to read too much before I do a talk like this, but I've read around a little bit, and one of the consensus things that people seem to say is most people or maybe everyone this is not true because i'm not everyone don't like all three or at least uh, have very very different ratings for all three and they don't even mm -hmm. if they like all three and they rank them they rank them very differently i think that that makes this triptych a huge success um i like all three i think i like them fairly evenly i mostly am breaking the mold but pacific edge is is my favorite and it's my favorite because of it's so, I mean, Stan, I, the actual story of what life would be like to a certain extent personally, but especially politically living mm. in a utopia. And it's, it's very much not an, an anarchist utopia. It's very much, it's very much government based. It's very far from the, yeah. the William Morris image of just you know like they spend a lot of time at town council meetings and you and i talked about um i think yes. you said the veil of stupidity uh <laughs> that, that that can descend over town council yeah. meetings but what just thrills me about this book is that there's two political parties and 
they're arguing and they're arguing about something that really matters and also really doesn't matter. And they're both taking positions in this, what you've said, this front, right? This left front. One of the groups is called the Greens and the other one is called the New Federalists, but we would call them, we would call them the the, the progressives, you know, yes, I think. true. AOC said recently something like, oh, and, you know, in a different political system, I wouldn't be in the same party as as Joe Biden. And, you know, this is a sensible thing to think we can imagine a world, right, in which AOC and Joe Biden are political enemies. But in that world, there's the same sort of politics and dirty dealing and backbiting and infighting that we get right now. And yet also in some ways, the stakes are lower because the central problem has been solved. And although I I take your point that how the central problem gets solved is not fully explicated, the idea that the utopia could happen, but you could also still kind of waste your life at town council meetings and feel frustrated constantly. Holding both of those two ideas at the same time is crucially important to me. And I see so few stories, Stan, that sort of suggest that we could fix the central problems of the world and life would go on with its beauty and profundity and frustrations and inanity. There's not much like that out there. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I did, that was one point I wanted to make. If you got utopia, it would be endangered. It would be a rule, a rule of law. And therefore the law is always in flux and being argued over. So it would be contested. And then also, say you had a good society, you could still fall in love with someone who was in love with someone else, who was in love <laughs> with someone else. You could be desperately unhappy, and you're also still going to die. And this is the book in which Tom Barnard dies. There will be death in Utopia. So Utopia yeah. is not heaven. Yeah. And um, it was super important to me to um, get back to the H.G. Wells definition of Utopia as just a positive direction in history and a dynamic state, not an in-state. And I worked hard in Pacific Edge to make those points. And so it's a ambiguous utopia like the <laughs> subtitle to the dispossessed. It has elements of uh, the earlier utopias. I read them all and wanted to gesture to them, especially uh, William Morris and Bellamy and even back to Moore. But there was in the 70s, before Reagan and Thatcher arrived, before neoliberalism arrived, and when the world seemed like it was dynamic and anything could happen, including goodness, coming out of Vietnam and, and, the, and coming out of the colonial period into post-colonialism, it was feeling like, I, I tried to recover this feeling of potentiality for goodness. And there was a nonfiction utopian literature in the 70s that's mostly out of print. Small is beautiful, mm. muddling towards frugality, um, progress as a survival mattered, the integral urban house. Uh, there's, I could, if I searched my memory, I could, I could come up with quite a few more. I had a whole shelf of them. So it was utopian literature, but in nonfiction blueprint form. Let's do this. And it and Lou, you mentioned Lewis Mumford. Mumford, of course, <laughs> crucially, yes, utopian nonfiction, social theory. And so I wanted to gesture to all that stuff. And there was Herman Daly, there was Hazel Henderson, there was Joan Robinson. There were um, post-capitalist cap, uh, theory struggling 
to imagine a way out of capitalism towards something in the left. So these were, maybe they had a Marxist background, people like Joan Robinson, but by and large, they were trying to say, here's where we are now. This is how we can make it better. Even, um, not Keynes, but, um, oh God, his name is escaping me. He was a mainstream economist of the 50s who advised Kennedy. It'll come to me later. Oh, I know who you mean. Yeah, but I yeah, can't. A whole tradition that was progressive. And that was what fueled Pacific Edge um, in the political sense of, uh, and, and also, uh, of course, Ecotopia. Mm -hmm. I met yeah. Colin Bach because people called Pacific Edge a new Ecotopia, and Colin Bach loved that, um, that he had a, a follower or, or he had follow up to mm -hmm. his Ecotopian vision. I met him and Fritjof Capra, another great thinker of the time, the Tao of Physics and um, his book about the world being an organism, not a machine. Capra was an, a, a wonderful thinker, and there were a lot of them. So that's who I, um, I, that's who I was reading. That's who I incorporated into my thinking. None of them, including me, had a, a plan to get from here to there. And so that that lack is in Pacific Edge also. But the idea of what you would want to get to was quite um, articulated. And that was what died with the Reagan-Thatcher counter-revolution and, and with neoliberalism generally, the idea that we could get to a good human uh, post-capitalist future by rule of law, by legal changes rather than revolution or, mm -hmm. or magic. Um, this was something that I tried my best for. Yeah, and that is, this takes us back to the conversation about democratic socialism and or social democracy. That, you know, the the writer in this book is is not the young man, it's the old man this time. It's Tom Barnard. And True. His, his the, the, the story that we get from him is the the kind of looking backward, the story of how this came to be it's not explicit and detailed it's fairly abstract but it is very he's very clear and i mean i i, I must admit i i hew more to the anarchist line that sort of like law is the protection of wealth and and power and that's that's what law shall be law shall ever trend towards that i find this you know tom's articulation of how you can take the law and and shape it to you know to bring justice obviously that's the that's the heart of the liberal tradition and the yeah. social democratic and or democratic yeah. socialist tradition that you can take the law into the hands of the people and make it what what the world should be i don't know if that would work but by god does it seem necessary to try i'm much more interested in that than in hopes of the revolution i mean one reason why this podcast is called everyday anarchism is because i really wanted to disassociate myself from any idea that we could you know quote smash the state and then after we have smashed the state the good things flow this is this is absurd and the revolution if it comes is going to have to come in some sort of long protracted and, ev and evolutionary way and any tools necessary the law by 
by all means. I mean, you, you've got a great line in ministry where you say, like, it's going to be the nation state. So sorry, anarchists or something like that. But, <laughs> yes, uh, you know, well, fine, yeah. I'll take it. You know, it doesn't matter. Really, it doesn't matter to me. I don't want to sit in town council meetings, but if the town council meeting is like, do we build good, useful medical technology or do we have a park? This seems like a world I can I can live with and I wouldn't want to smash that government. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I I, I appreciate your thoughts immensely. I've struggled with this all along. Um, I In my old age, but through the course of my life, I have become more and more of a, it's law or or nothing, mm-hmm. um, in, or chaos rather than anarchism, and right. rule of law, that if you made good laws, this is the thing, if you made good laws, <laughs> then you would have justice. So that's the you would that's better than uh, shooting all the supposedly bad people and then taking over and then who has taken over. So and so this is a little I mean given where I was when I was twenty five it feels a little wimpy, uh, and a little bit like as you age you get more conservative which I think I have not I've aged and stayed as radical as ever but the means to get there. Mm-hmm. and we're stuck with the nation state for a while it's not a good system i'd rather have world government i'd rather have town governments and world governments and the in-between of the nation state is uh, uh quite bad <laughs> a kind of tribalism writ large and so i can see and much of my life the state has been doing bad things but i keep coming back to the great utopian short story the Amer- the great american utopian short story that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from this earth. Well, this is a state, uh, a, a statement of, uh, in favor of a state, but of the people, by the people, and for the people are the crucial phrase. And I, I hear this is somewhat of a AOC crowd thing, people talking about of by for. And that's what they're referencing, mm-hmm. of by for, government of the people, by the people, for the people. And she's totally wrong. She should be a, a complete Bidenista. <laughs> um, uh, well, everybody should. I should. Well, I think I should say that <laughs> quote is from before Joe ah. Biden decided to pretend to be FDR exactly. for two years. Um, well, so that's uh, a different yeah. look. Biden yeah. is uh, now. Yes. I th- I think at this point I'm ready to label from as a as a historian of American ideas and politics Joe Biden is now the most left-wing president in American history probably even surpassing FDR based on this based on two based on two years if you extra, if, if Joe Biden's first yeah. two years became 14 more years the transformation would be even greater than fdr and that was that was when we all thought biden was a centrist when yes. it turns out what biden was was a centrist democrat and he was just going to go down the middle of whatever the democratic party wanted and when the pandemic happened in the middle of the democratic party wanted to give money to poor people you were just like he was just gonna give money to poor people uh yeah. that's that's my read he also does think he's he since he comes from before the neoliberal era he's right. you know dumb enough to believe that those 30 glorious years can can come back again he has this silly nostalgic view that actually the time that government worked and created shared middle-class democratic prosperity could happen again obama was too young to uh, have experienced that, and therefore he couldn't imagine that utopian fantasy. I agree. 
I would say that up until he became president, Biden was a mediocrity <laughs> and and um, a, a get a, go along to get along. And there was no sign of what he was really about. And, and yeah. any of the signs, several signs of what he was really about were, were quite bad. Um, and what I think happened was precisely that historical imagination of now that I'm president, why not be FDR? He's a new we dealer. Need, yeah, we need one. Yeah. And and FDR was a stupendous American president um, with all of his flaws, because he too was a mediocrity. And <laughs> and so um, the there's some power for in the imagination of since I'm now president, I might as well do good. And before that, one couldn't tell what that person's <laughs> values were. And uh, you know maybe Obama thought that too, but he was too inexperienced, and he was in a a, a particularly fraught and unfortunate situation. So he didn't manage to achieve, and maybe he didn't even know what he wanted. But Biden is a new dealer. FDR was the new deal. And um, Biden has been unexpectedly wonderful. And which isn't to say he's perfect. He still is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Joe be, Biden. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. And his, he's hilarious on this. Don't compare me to God, compare me to the other guy. It's a, <laughs> it's a canny way to point out uh, real politic. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I had, I had James Fallows on the show recently to kind of defend the left, to see if he could defend left neoliberalism and the accusations that at least a lot of my younger friends argue that, you know, neoliberalism was a Carter project, not a not a Reagan project. And oh. at one point, Jim just had to say, well, I mean, Carter ran against Reagan. Is that not, is that yeah. not good? Is it not good enough for you? He literally tried to make him not president. So that seems, yeah, that seems pretty good. Also, Carter, I think, was somewhat like Obama, too inexperienced to operate Washington. And Washington didn't like him and, and, and stomped on him. That happened to them in ways that, um, have eerie similarities for me, having seen them both. And um, one thing Biden has done that I quite love is he's hired a lot of smart young people. So his age is irrelevant. It's yeah. the team he's hired. And when you say Joe Biden, what you really mean is about 3,000 people working together. And so this mistake that we make to personify this is a literary this is english major stuff yeah. <laughs> personification you take something big and complicated and you name it as a person or as a pet and personification in this case is deceptive because biden is being advised by a bunch of young lefties and he's had the brains to hire them he's had the good judgment to hire a bunch of young progressives who are doing things that are simply astonishing and beyond thought the American political system could handle, and they've just gone to Washington and done it. And he's had the good judgment to say, I give you my blessing, and then we all call it Joe Biden. But in fact, I mean, I've maybe met 50 of these 3,000 people, and I could not be more impressed. Yeah, I think, you know, we should, I should stop taking so much of your time, and we should get back to the Pacific Edge before we go. I, I do have a different okay. reading on yeah. Obama briefly, which is just... I don't think it was inexperienced. I think that he wanted to know that everything he did was was going to work. He had that pragmatist bent. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and look at the New Deal, Keynes hadn't even really established Keynesianism yet. FDR and his team were just like, 
let's just try some stuff. Obama didn't want to try some stuff. Obama wanted to do the right thing and he spent eight years fiddling with it and never happened. And yeah. like FDR Biden, let's see what sticks. And I think yeah. that's uh that's the, that experimental nature of the presidency, it turns out is what is what's gonna work. I don't think Carter had that let's throw stuff out there vibe, but I'll have to ask James Fallows if I get a chance. Yeah, no, I think that sounds right to me that that seems fitting to describe what the differences were. And there is a phrase, and you'll enjoy my Washington, D.C. trilogy, except for the fact that it's way too long. But if you read the shorter <laughs> version called Green Earth, it's in one volume. It's at least a little, you know, two or 300 pages shorter. But in there, there I talk a lot about FDR and, and about Thoreau and Emerson, but bold and persistent experimentation. And that was uh, FDR's phrase for what he was doing through the 30s. Yeah. And, um, now we're seeing a similar thing. And damn, we need it. We need it bad, bold and persistent experimentation. So, you know, fingers crossed, we get four more years of Biden and things could be transformative. The 2020s could come out well. And this brings us back to Pacific Edge. Mm -hmm. Without being perfect, you could still have the better than bad. And so once you're caught in history, it's not about utopia anymore. It's about better rather than worse. And, and I think Pacific Edge does a good job of showing problems aren't solved, death still happens, um, dashed hopes in love, but also political messiness. And I had, I had seen some town council meetings, but I had never been embroiled in them like I've been since <laughs> I finished Pacific Edge. <laughs> Uh, weirdly, after I wrote the book, I moved back <laughs> to Davis, and there I am in Village Homes, California, a utopian 70s development, trying to turn suburbia into a better place. And it worked. Village Homes in Davis is a better suburbia than most any other suburbia, because it's communal, because it's Mumford, because it's uh, Shoemaker, and the whole 70s nonfiction utopian tradition. I actually moved into it after I wrote the book. It was eerie, and it, it always felt eerie to me. And I've been on my goddamn village homes council and slept through meetings just like Kevin. <laughs> but it happened after I wrote the book. It was not written out of experience. I'm like condemned to relive my most boring novel. <laughs> uh, oh, well. well. I think the last thing I want to say before I let you go is it do it doesn't bother me the lack of I mean you've obviously done the programmatic thing since in terms of how this would happen. To me it works that Tom is the living memory that the dream of I think he calls it social democracy. He might call it democratic socialism. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's social democracy. Do you do you recall precisely? I think that's right. Yeah. Um, maybe let me say this and you can edit at will, but Tom, he's in a concentration camp and because he's suspected of having AIDS. And I wrote this in 1989 and, and I was uh, on top of it. The idea of immigrants being uh, jailed and put into camps. And then Tom is writing the way I first wrote Pacific Edge, it was going to be backwards in that Tom is writing his imaginary utopia, which is the text of Pacific Edge. Mm. And then at the end, he throws the book in the fire and Pacific Edge just goes down in flames. 
this is a dark because I was yeah. writing 1989. Yeah. And my my editor Beecham, she said, Stan, you're you're messing up your utopian novel. Um, you don't want to make the utopian one darkest of all. You don't want to dash the hopes of utopia. You've got it wrong here. Um his time in the camps is the time where he plans the revolution, not where he writes the book mm -hmm. that yes. is a, a fiction only. And so I rewrote extensively, uh, realizing that Beth was right and, and a wonderful editor. And she uh, steered me through the, the three Californias uh, with uh, tremendous skill and sympathy. And she said, you know, I, I can see why you might have thought this was clever, but it's not politically or or um, emotionally right. And so I rewrote what you see. And so, but at least I did have the idea that Tom was going to fight because he had seen the dark side. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's about as far as I got in terms of the history. And then I had to skip ten years where he and his cohort succeeded. Well, and that's maybe that's where we are now. We need that ten years of success from the. Well, that's that's what I was going to say. I mean, first of all, I'm 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 with you in that the Biden presidency. I'm, I'm with you. I'm not I'm not trying to destroy the United States government. I'm trying to use any means necessary to make things better. The Biden presidency seems to be one of the greatest forces for making things better in the history of the United States. And uh, the fact that Tom says, I realized when things were darkest that we had to take this system. He's very explicit. The system of laws is set up to control people and to protect capital. But we've got levers that we can use that are not violent revolution, but that are based on democratic principles. That does seem to be the moment we are in and i i would have been very mad at you stan if you had burned if you had symbolically burned mm -hmm, this yeah. text and i well, like it... that 10 years being undetermined you've got your thousand pages to tell the story elsewhere this yes. is our 10 years it's we need yes. it yes that's that's very true and i will say that the in those 10 years the rule of law it, it, um the the wage ratio, the fact that you can't make more than $100,000 a year, this is Pacific Edge money, and then you can't make less than 10000 that 1 to 10 ratio, I've held to that idea the whole rest of my life. Yeah. It, and it comes out of Chinese communism, and it's the obvious right thing to do, and the co-op movement has picked it up, the wage ratio. And I talk about it a lot in, in Ministry for the Future, that the U.S. Navy has the best wage ratio of any organization on earth and so let's think about how high the esprit de corps are there how high the efficiencies how uh, it's the obvious right thing to do to make sure that there's a floor and a ceiling to personal wealth well neoliberalism just blew that up <laughs> and now we're back in the gilded age and so you know there are things that need to happen and and even though pacific edge is a, absolutely a historical artifact of of the late 80s, um, I think it still has the right set of fundamental political values that I can stand by. So, and also as 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 weird as experience as it was for me, and I would say unsatisfactory, it made me write the Mars trilogy as an immediate follow-up to try to come to grips with history itself. So in a way, it was a kind of springboard to trying something, you know, even more ambitious. Okay, I think that's a great place 
to leave it. Um, hopefully, listeners, you've heard this as three episodes. That's the plan. But one way or another, you've heard Kim Stanley Robinson and I discuss the Three Californias trilogy. Uh, I'm Stan. I'm very glad you came on this podcast again. I'm much happier that you you wrote these books and you continue writing these books. They are an inspiration to me. And I can tell you they're an inspiration to many of us. Thank you. Well, thank you, Graham. And let's do it again. There's more to, <laughs> more to say about all these issues. And okay. I, pre- I appreciate it very much. Those, it's obvious, I think. those The three Californias meant an awful lot to me. And I've gone on to do many other books, but it's really fun to think back to that earlier uh, era. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Stan. Well... That's it for my conversation with Kim Stanley Robinson about Three Californias. It was such a pleasure to talk to him. If you listen to the trailer of this series, this whole conversation became a little bittersweet because it reminded me that I had not gotten back to a friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Robert Corbin, the man who introduced me to the work of Kim Stanley Robinson in high school and that he had passed away the same week that Stan and I were talking. So it's not much. It's about as close as it can be to literally nothing. But I would like to dedicate this little series to the memory of Robert Corbin. Thanks for everything, Corbin. You made such a difference in my life. Which brings me to a little announcement Stan and I are going to do this again next year sometime. Don't know exactly when. We're still working it out. But in 2024, we'll have another trilogy with Kim Stanley Robinson. This time, it's the big one. The first ones I ever read. The ones that made him a legend. The Mars Trilogy. See you for that. In the meantime, I hope you're enjoying the show. And yeah, there's a year's more of the David Graeber Debt series coming, so I hope you are enjoying that. Thanks again to Kim Stanley Robinson. This has been amazing. To Ellen Wright, the amazing publicist who has helped me so much behind the scenes with this series and elsewhere. And of course, one last thank you to, to Dr. Robert Corbin, a man who had such an impact on my thinking and my way of being in the world. I'll miss you, Corbin. The music which you are about to hear is by David Hill.